HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Comté Cheese Association. Comté, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at comté-usa.com. That's c-o-m-t-e-usa.com. Hello everyone, I am Carlos Jescas and I'm your guest host for today. I'm just back from Oviedo in Spain where a Spanish cheese made by a small goat's milk cheese producer won the best cheese at the World Cheese Awards. It was a wonderful time to recognize a small producer. I hope to have the winner of the award and others in the future episode. Today I will be talking to a very good friend of mine, someone who I admire and have learned a lot from and also had big conversations about traditional cheese. You may know him for his work and volunteering in the industry. If so, I am sure you'll agree he's a great educator. Robert has been in cheese since Robert Aguilera, sorry, has been in cheese since 2001. First in retail, then sourcing and importing cheese and artisan food products from Europe, then in cheese production, trade sales and support for nine and a half years, serving artisan and industrial cheesemakers in cultures, equipment, aging room shelving and tools, packaging for bare shell life and troubleshooting services. Since 2020, he has been with CHRN Hansen, primarily working with fresh dairy and cheese producers, but supporting also plant-based and fermented meat customers as well. Welcome back to the show, Robert. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. Good. Robert was first interviewed by Anne Saxelby in 2010 in episode 17. Yeah. Long time ago. He has also (laughs) shared his knowledge in episode 20 and episode 85 and in episode 371 with Elena Santaget. So we won't go over his entire story as a cheese professional, but we would like him to talk briefly about how the industry has changed and what are some of the issues that are starting to become more important in his part of the world. Robert, you and I know each other for a long time, and I know others in New England and beyond may also recognize your name. But a lot of the work you have done for the past 10 years has been behind the scenes. So I would like to start by asking you to update us on what has been going on for the past three years. Yeah, um, so... 
when I got into the trade side, and I did cover a little bit of this in a previous podcast, but um, it, it was really trying to figure out where do I fit in the world of of artisan cheese or or cheese in general. I still wanted to be in it and wanted to wanted to to share and learn. That's the main thing. It's always understanding why things do or or do not work the way that they should, and how do you develop incredible tasting products. So I was lucky enough uh, with Matteo Keeler's help to get into an interview with a company called Fromagex from Canada, which many people may know, which sells all sorts of different products for production um, from cultures all the way through to packaging. And so I was lucky enough to get the job and lucky enough to work with all great artisans and, and try my best. But I knew I didn't know enough. And I did go back to school when... Um, UVM had the Vermont Art Institute for Artisan Cheese. I went there and um, got to learn, you know, from Mr. Kinstead and from Monse Almena and from also Mark Girard, who a lot of people may know as well. And it was great. But the best part about it was being able to go and connect with the people who were at the class. So I got to meet a lot of different new producers and existing producers and got to connect with them and was lucky enough to get into productions with them, which was fantastic. They got to bring me in and I got to get my hands dirty and figure out what it is that I'm doing here. So didn't really go into the theory of cheesemaking and dairy, but got into the real tactile understanding. And that came originally from, again, being in the, the procuring side and going to find products in, in Europe at Formaggio Kitchen and being able to walk through different production facilities, ask questions, but also really understand the place, understand the way that a process moved, the feeling of the temperature, the humidity, the movement of the people within, the way all the product, the, the curd moved from one step to the next. I really took as many notes as I could to understand why does this product that has been made for hundreds of years always turn out in a range <laughs> that is not only good, but is excellent and is hard to recreate. That's always been my my focus is to understand why is this one unique thing so unique and how is it possible that it's possible to make it consistently in, in a range? And so that always fuels my my need to know and to learn. So luckily with Fromage X Cultures um, was a part of it. And when I finally got the ability to sell it in 2015, uh, Christian Hansen products were being sold from there. And I got to really understand all of their information. They had the most information to share about their starters, their certification curves, the flavors that they could develop, at least in general. And I took that to heart, but also got to offer that to different producers and to see it through. And then to see it through not only in the process of in the vat, but also in some cases, the application of surface ripening bacteria to the exterior and to understand how to maximize their ability and especially in places where you have commingled different products in the same space. So I, I was very fortunate, you know, not just for the, the opportunity that I had with my work, but the people who would allow me to come in to talk and to try to figure out how can we make your product or support your product the way that you want. And so that led to um, working for Christian Hansen and just focusing on cultures, which I had a bit of a pause in between from Ajax and there it was almost eight months. And still didn't stop trying to support everyone that I could, um, whether it was through guilds. Uh, the Oregon Cheese Guild had me out to do talks. Um, I've been helping out the Massachusetts Cheese Guild a little bit here and there during that time period. And also was on the, Ameri um, the 
ACS education committee for the last three years as well, and got to help develop some of the, the seminars and also some of the open network sessions as well. And that's been the best is being in the community is the best thing. And, and before we move on to the next question, I do want to hit on one thing Like it's, it's amazing just to look back in the original um, podcast that I was on with Anne, how at one point I was supposed to be considered like a roving monger where I would come in and tell her about my travels or what I've learned, what I've heard about. We didn't really get to do that all the time, but it, it stemmed from the original meeting that I had with her, which I had heard about her new store coming on. And when we went to, I went, got to luckily go to the ACS conference in Burlington in 2007. I got to go for 24 hours. That was only, the only amount that I was allowed to go because I was on a panel. So I went, did my panel, finished, and then drove back to Boston to, to work in the store. But when I saw her in between after doing my session um, and before leaving, I saw her and I pointed at her and I said, we need to talk. We need to talk. <laughs> and she said, yeah, we do. She didn't even know who I was in reality. But we went to the bar, the hotel bar, and we talked for hours just about what she was going to do with the store. We talked about different cheeses. We talked about all the things that we've been thinking about. And the one thing I just want to get across to everybody that I don't know. I mean, I know you all had the and I listened to that great session that you did in the last um, cutting the curd. But Anne was the most professional, passionate, thoughtful shepherd of enthusiasm you know, for, for food and art. She, she had the innate ability to connect excited, curious minds to the collective emotion and understanding of one of the most difficult productions in existence, which is fermented cheese and dairy. And she did it in such an effortless, fun way, but she always made sure to highlight the artistry. I mean, the, the, her ability to connect, not just people to products, but people to people is second to none. It, it's, if anything, I want people to listen to this and be inspired by her. And she has left a legacy that I think we all want to continue in some way. And I think younger generations also do want to as well. But it's just taking a chance at the positive and the, the opportunities that are out there to grow together. That's the thing that always struck me and always drew me to her. And she was incredible to always include me in conversations or, or ask me anything and it was great having this free-flowing conversation that basically never ended. And now it's wonderful to have bits and pieces of her, including, you know, her book that, that she came out with and the legacy that she left with Slow Food. So if anything, I'm only trying to continue that through the work that I do as well. I want to make sure to always try to connect, try to bring more people to the table when it comes to talking about cultures. Thank you, Robert. That's uh, really sweet. Uh, not only that you had a connection with her for so long and, you know, to know, you know, the, that you were welcomed by her since the beginning. I mean, episode 17, I can't yeah. imagine if, well, I kind of started listening to when I was preparing for this show, I kind of started listening. I was like, it sounded, it sounded new, let's say. We all did. We all did. This a long time ago. 
and um but um but good so i'm i'm also i was also kind of happy that part of the conversation that i wanted to have with you today you have also had uh in the show and 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 also with elena because i think one of the things that now looking back at, at cutting the curd and you sort of like taking it sort of the responsibility of being the host mm-hmm. is that um you know you go back and it's like okay what can i bring that hasn't been talked. And sometimes it's not that it hasn't been talked. Sometimes it's just that we need to talk about it again or in a new light because we're all learning so much. And that's why I think that it is so wonderful uh, to talk to you. So um, let's go, let's kind of go back at what you were doing because I think it's very interesting that um, you you have, uh, when I started in cheese, right? Like I read Stephen Jenkins' book. Yes. Uh, We all did. We all did. we have kind of a memory of what that book was about. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so we have very specific, I think people in our generation have very specific uh, um, memories of cheese mm-hmm. that may not make it to the United States anymore because there was this period there that some cheeses were coming that were raw, but they weren't supposed to be there. And then some, there were some cheeses that, you know, uh, American cheeses started being made in those styles, and so they sort of the Europeans started sort of falling out of style. Mm-hmm. But you, as a cheese buyer in Europe, and, and also for some of the products in the United States, have had that sort of like um, you know from above view of how yeah. so many cheeses are changing, and you are now really a part of some of these change and, and development of some new mm-hmm. cheeses that are like taking them out to us. And so I, I think this is why I, I wanted to talk to you. So I want, mm. if you could explain uh, sort of in the easiest way, <laughs> what is that you do for Christian Hansen? Because I, I, I have heard from you maybe three times and mm-hmm. every time I hear it, it's like, oh my God, this is fascinating, but I just don't understand it quite well. So <laughs> let's, let's see if we can do it on the radio. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, as an account manager, I'm responsible for certain customers um, primarily. And when it's, it's not just as a sales position, here's the product, do you like it? Do you want to try it? We run a, a field trial, which is totally possible. It goes well. It doesn't go well. They decide yes. They decide no. That's the basic kind of way of, of that's kind of the, the momentum. And it's also understanding the realities of the of the account, the plant, understanding their, again, the, the, the big larger view, um, because we do try to help monitor the health of the production. If there's ever slowdowns, we're called in, you know, to make sure what's going on. And we talk about sanitation. We talk about practices. We talk about what's changed. So in an an interesting way, it ties back into me trying to understand other productions of why is this so consistent? Because if you can understand the consistency, then you ask the question, why is something different? What happened different today or yesterday, whatever it might be. And eventually, if you can find one of the reasons why, you can get back to a normal production. So if anything, that's the biggest amount of support that I offer. Then on top of that becomes, all right, we, our production's going fine. We'd like to develop new flavors, um, especially in cheeses. Not Maybe not in fresh dairy, but there's other topics around that where, where we do come in for trying to adjust texture and mouthfeel and things like that, let's say in yogurt. But in cheeses, you know, when the question comes to, I want to develop a new flavor, Okay, so we do have other cultures that take advantage of available available material after first 
you know, acidification after the first process of cheese making that are left over, peptides, amino acids, all of that, that then start to utilize that fuel and that those compounds to then break them down to then release certain flavors, hopefully. And we have targets. We have studied our cultures enough to understand if you use this culture in general, it will go in this direction. If you use this one, it'll go in a different direction. It's not always 100% true that it's going to work that way. And the best part is to help understand here's where we're trying to get to, but let's also evaluate what we get out of a field test trial and see, is this closer or what else do we have to do? Because not always is it just switch out the culture. In many cases, it's, well, let's go back to understanding the production, understanding the moisture content, the salt content, the movement of the acidification curve, the, the drying time, the drying temperature, the conditions in the aging room. There's so many different things that you can change, so many variables that you can try to get closer and closer. But it's a long process to get there. And the fact that our customers are willing to go along with us on it is fantastic. And we try to offer as much data as we can. That's the biggest piece is helping them understand what's take, taking place through data analysis of any kind that we can, we can gather for them if it's possible. Um, but those are the big pieces. Cool. So kind of just to, to get the sense, let's say there's a cheese a cheese or a fresh dairy producer or, or even a plant-based mm-hmm. now producer, yeah. they, they either come with a problem and they want you to help fix or they mm-hmm. come with an idea of something new. So you come and try to help them in that. Correct. Do you, so you go into the plant and like you said, you look at, you know, sort of efficiencies and cleanliness and you know, mm-hmm. all these things and then you make product with them, right? You, I mean, not... You you take that sort of maybe not you specifically, but this company makes that sort of process. Yeah, depending on on what's required and asked and allowed, we'll we'll be a part of that make, and sometimes we'll be in at one o'clock in the morning until you know five o'clock in the afternoon. Um, sometimes it's just monitoring, or it's just checking in with somebody who's running it, um, and it's sharing of data. You know, and if they're able to do that and share just a bit of information for us to understand how the production's going, that's enough for us to have a conversation. So it's always trying to support the customer on what they feel is appropriate and what they need, um, and never telling them how to make their product. So, because we are not the cheesemaker, we are, we are there to support them. And we, we try our best and we do try to, to offer suggestions or offer some thoughts, something to think about in the production. Well, we noticed, you know, your, your water, you know, your, your washing water is a certain temperature, Maybe that may be something to consider if you want to get to a certain flavor, a certain texture. Um, there's a lot of conversations that happen. And it's really in an effort to help bring the customer to their the solution that they have maybe already been thinking about and support them on that and get them the thoughts and the tools and the possible measurements that they can then own and then get to their endpoint. And so, you know, one of the, the the things that I found so fascinating when I have talked to, you know, clients of yours, or maybe not specifically you, but clients of Hansen, uh, is that, you know, they were trying to get to, let's say, a manchego style cheese, mm-hmm. uh, but with goat's milk, right? And yeah. so they go through this sort of like process and they try to figure out how to, you know, approximate what... Um, 
a flavor that they have an idea or a memory mm -hmm. even of a flavor and, and they go through that, that process. And it would seem sometimes that that process is, you know, one that sort of on the other side of the count or, or the other side of the industry, you know, it's the sort of idea of the traditional mm -hmm. is that that only really happens in, without much manipulation, right? That flavor right. And, and, right. and textures and everything is just kind of like, mystic and just mm. happens but then on the other side the cheesemaker actually has a lot of help in this case from from companies like like yours that mm -hmm. are actually um sort of helping move those levers to get to a to a to a product what do you so this is a big setup for a question mm -hmm. uh but so what do you think and because I, I want to bring it to you what do you think is um What is your role, having so much knowledge about traditional artisanal cheeses that you have brought to this job that is kind of like really transforming the specialty cheese industry, uh, you know, to have you know, products that sort of approximate closer to the traditional and mm -hmm. artisanal cheeses and also now to non-dairy mm -hmm. cheeses? So it's interesting. I mean, we you can always try to make a traditional product from from the cultures that you provide but ultimately you're you're going with a skeleton of a process you're going with a skeleton of the basic type of cultures mesothermic mesothermic or or mesophilic or thermophilic forgive me <laughs> um which kind of denotes the type of of process that this cheese is going to go through you have those framework pieces and then you go through the process And then at the end, you analyze, you taste, you figure out what is this like? Is this okay? Is this not okay? Now, but that's with the knowledge of what you put in to the production. And whether it's from raw milk or it's pasteurized, the place that the product, that the milk, the materials come from, the process it goes through to transfer into a vat, the production facility where it is made, All of those have an effect. All of those have an impact. And sometimes you're not aware of what it is that's coming along with the milk or in the facility that is having an effect on the product. So ultimately, we can, we can try to get in a general direction to where a customer wants to go, but there's still so many variables that are unknown and unfound. There's still so much maybe mysticism in life, which has to do with the science of what's in, in a certain facility and process that has an impact that we can't ultimately say that it's just our cultures doing all the work. They're, they're providing the a process and the timing and all of those pieces and getting to certain flavors. But in the end, you know, we find some of the best cheeses, um, even the, the, in the artisanal, those cheeses that have been made for centuries in Europe, there's a little bit of help from cultures and enzymes that have been purchased that are not made, you know, from native cultures, that are not enzymes that are coming from the calves, you know, that are there by the facility. So there is a little bit of change, but what ultimately creates the final great product that we enjoy is the process, is the place, is all the other things that we don't see. So there's still so much that we have to learn. And I think that's also why we are very open to What is it that our customers are hoping to do and helping them understand from what we can understand about our cultures? Here's what we can see, but we'll continue to try to help. And who knows what we can find? 
I mean, we do get a lot of, um, we do work a lot with universities too. And that's where a lot of the most interesting work takes place to try to identify new flavors or, or where certain flavors are coming from and what can we do and to understand the production further. So that's the best part is being connected and being a global company, we are connected to many different facilities like that around the world. Um, but there's still so much to learn, even though we, we do offer a lot and we do have our, our cultures in many different productions around the globe, there's still a lot to learn. And that's what we continue to do is be open to what we can learn. Cool. So I saw a post recently from your company. I, of course, mm -hmm. I'm not asking you to, to explain yeah. our company because you're just, you're just one piece of this big thing. Yeah. But one of the posts from the company was something like 50% of all dairy products in the world have a, at least one Hansen product. Mm -hmm. You, you know, that is one of those numbers that is like, do I want to, you know, do we really want these companies to have that much impact in the world? Right. And mm -hmm. that I think I think part of the question here and, and, and why I feel both comfortable asking you is because you're my friend, but also uh, asking is because you also come, you had kind of a sense from before of, mm -hmm. you know, before uh, working for them. And so I just kind of want to understand what is sort of the what is what what is the good and what is the maybe drawbacks or even the bad they have a, you know, a company that is so big having sort of a hand in so many of the production processes um i mean again it, the thought would be that with too too much of your products out there a lot of things taste the same or a lot of things pre become the same but i would push back on that and say it's you can't necessarily prove that um but you can you can say that the productions are are safer they're developing and they continue to change they they give us access to not only understanding how our cultures work but also how they interact in different places in different productions in different processes and that learning continues to spur on new products and continues to to understand what else is out there that we're not aware of. How else can we develop to support not just our customers, but more, more products. So to create more variation. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a tough one when you come from the artisan world and then you start thinking about this. You don't want everything to taste the same, but I would push back and say, no matter who uses the same cultures, not everything does because the raw material is different. The place is different. The process is different. The aging facilities, the packaging is different. All of those things have an effect. So there's still so much to understand. And even though we do have our products all over the globe, I think first and foremost, it does at least provide, in some cases, safety in some productions where it may not have been before, or at least consistency and safety where it wasn't before. That's first. Um, second, it, it again allows more education to happen, not just for the customers we, we serve, but for ourselves. So, and that's something we continue to, to try to try to support and also try to get universities involved so that can be shared as well. So that's the best part is the connectivity that we start getting because it's just going to lead to more understanding. I mean, you, you, you know as well, I mean, from working from folks with folks in South America and Central America, you know, we, we get, we suddenly meet somebody from, let's say, Nepal or from who comes to an American Cheese Society conference and you want to know everything about them. You want to know, wait, how are you making this cheese? Not just because you want to take advantage of them, but you really want to understand 
you really want to understand uh, what are the differences? Like, how could something work there that is different in a different part of the world? Because there is there are so many variables involved. So it's a constant exploration and a constant learning and education. So the fact that we're able to get our products out there is is fantastic. But I think it does not trounce the existence of the myriad of things we, we don't even understand yet. <laughs> cool. Um, we're going to take a break here. Um, but before we go, I want to t thank everyone who listens to us and all your messages on social media and feedback. We have gotten a lot from um, the episode, uh, the tribute episode we did for Anne Saxilla. We are listening and want to hear more from you. I also want to again thank the Heritage Radio Network for hosting this show and opening spaces for many voices working in the food industry. Please consider supporting these and other shows you can donate directly on their website, heritageradionetwork.org. Now, a word from our sponsors. This episode of Cutting the Curd is brought to you by Conte Cheese Association. Conte Cheese Association represents the Conte PDO, Conte Protected Designation of Origin in the USA. Conte is a raw milk cooked pressed cheese from the Jura Mountains of France. There, every day, 2,500 family farms deliver milk to over 150 local cheesemaking facilities, or fruitiers. This milk must be transformed into Conte within 24 hours of milking to preserve the lactic microflora in the milk ensuring the cheese's aromatic potential. About 105 gallons of milk are required to craft a single wheel of Conte. Conte takes time to acquire its flavors in the affinage cellars. After eight months of aging by dedicated affineurs on average, each wheel of Conte is graded and shipped to market. No wheel of Conte is the same. Its flavors speak to the pastures where the cows grazed, the season in which it was made, the particular craftsmanship of the cheesemaker, and the time spent in the aging cellar. Therefore, every wheel of Conte is unique. Learn more about Conte, an iconic cheese from the Jura Mountains of France, favored by cheesemongers and cheese lovers all over the world. Find out more at Conte-USA.com. That's C-O-M-T-E-USA.com. Welcome back. I am Carlos Yescas. I am with Robert Aguilera, cheese professional and educator. Uh, before we, the break, we were talking a bit about sort of the role that Hansen has played and mm -hmm. they continues to play in sort of the um, in the world of dairy and its impact uh One of the things that you and I have worked actually quite close is uh, sort of supporting Latin American producers. You, mm -hmm. you have uh, been a part of my training program with, Latin, yeah. with specifically with Colombian uh, cheese producers. Uh, and you know from sort of the many conversations that we have had, uh, and including those ones that we had with the Colombian cheesemakers, that there is kind of a response maybe or kind of a um a new space that has opened um mm -hmm. for native cultures in kind of the uh trying to trying to sort of stop the the move from cultures that are you know from culture houses and all these things mm -hmm. and so i will i would like to sort of understand what your feeling is about how do we sort of help these producers in in Latin America, you know, sort of 
develop safer products, products that are like you said more um, consistent and mm. and the flavors are you know not so volatile, while at the same time sort of conserving that um, sort of nat native uh, cultures and those things that we just don't even understand that you know we haven't been studied. It's not the same what has been studied in Europe that what has been studied in say Costa Rica. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you know, so what you what you think is at the moment uh, to find that balance? Well, um, a little bit of history when um, Christian Hansen started, it actually started in Denmark and then went to New York actually. Um, and of course the whole point was, well, we have these different facilities around us in Denmark that are, that are making cheese and we want, what if we were able to capture their, their make and just produce it for them, or at least reproduce it so that they could always have access to it or maybe a backup of it. And then that also came into a bit of safety in New York as well. Like, well, let's make sure that whatever you're using and putting into your vet is safe. So if we can capture it and make it not sterile, but at least safe and consistent every time, then you'll be ensured whatever you're putting into your production is the same. So that's the, that's where it all kind of began was taking people's baby starters and helping them recreate it and produce it. So, but that happened, you know, 140 years ago. And so that starts just, they was both cultures and enzymes. And in fact, I think enzymes was the first, but it takes a, a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. And now you can do that, I think, within countries with the help of universities as well um, to try to, to develop that. But until you get to that point where you are able to access and have something that's safely manufactured, the, I mean, the technology is there, but also the, the scale to produce these is huge and also the money to do it is huge. So I can see the hurdle being there and being difficult, but with access to safe, safely produced and consistent cultures, it's a good way to start to get to the point where if there's an opportunity and somebody has the ability to develop that part of the business and create ongoing native cultures that way and knows how to do it in a clean way, and then I can see that existing. I mean, we're in an era where we can, we're having a podcast, you know, that's pretty simple to produce now, where it used to be difficult. Um, as technology gets there, there is more opportunity. It's a matter of how, how much you can put into it and how much money you can get to put towards it and really drive it. And do you have the customers for it? I mean, that is the, the hardest thing with, with cultures is having cultures that everybody can support and can make money for you because it is a business in the end. So it, it needs to run itself. So you try to develop new things and you hope that it catches on. But uh, in many cases, it doesn't. But it doesn't mean that there won't be another opportunity for something else and that there aren't other things being attempted. So right. it's a tough one, but I can see... Um, what I can see, though, is trying to utilize, as kind of I have done with cheesemakers, is not just utilize a, just an existing starter culture and an existing agent culture to get to a certain flavor, but to maybe utilize more than one. Like try to utilize a little bit of everything. Because in essence, when we have native cultures, you have a little bit of a lot of different things. And depending on the time of the year, the situation, the circumstances, the heat, the, the salt level, the moisture content, you get different outcomes. So 
that's the variability. And there's a range that we're willing to accept from artisans. So the same thing could be true for anyone who's using pasteurized milk um, with using different amounts of cultures. So that's something that I, I know that it's of a thought, but I've seen it work. And that's the best part is that there's an opportunity. Yes, there's a cost involved, but until you get to the point where you are large enough to maybe produce or you can focus on producing native cultures, there's a way to explore and create a business that can then maybe support that existence if it's to run in tandem. So what I'm saying is I think we can get to a place where it's almost hybrid, where it's almost both, where you do have one that supports the other, the development of the other in either direction. So I think this is a this is a fascinating thing. And I, I find it also very interesting when I think about um, sort of traditional cheeses from Mexico and mm -hmm. traditional cheese or cheeses of, of Latin and Hispanic styles yep. made in the United States, right? Like yep. there is always this conversation that, you know, whatever it is made in Mexico is, I mean, not only authentic, and that's a different conversation than this one, but right. that it tastes different, that the mm -hmm. same process uh, cheese um, that is made, say, in California, right? And, mm -hmm. and I understand that there is a sort of... Uh, um, sort of good feeling, but you know, if you're making, you know, queso, queso Oaxaca style mm -hmm. Oaxaca in in Tijuana, and you're mm -hmm. making it in San Diego, it's really difficult to argue that these are two very distinct places. Like you know, they're mm -hmm. so close in proximity, and so you know, I don't want I don't want to end up in a situation that you know, whatever is in that border on that side of the border is actually quite different from what is on this side of the border, but. What it sort of kind of surprised me is that the the, the producers of um, specifically Mexican style, for example, cheeses yep. in mm -hmm. in in the United States haven't achieved that sort of flavor uh, that that flavor that would trigger the memory of people that this is like they tasted it back home. Mm -hmm. And so I think that this is this is very interesting. That for example. Uh, uh, your companies like Hansen and, and many other companies have not tapped into that because it is a huge market, right? And, and so I, I would like to hear sort of what you're thinking of it is that, you know, we're so used to things, you know, being, no matter where you make it, you can make it in Brazil or you can make it in 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 um, in Wisconsin. You can make an, an Alpine style cheese now, right? It yes. doesn't really matter, but yes. not for these other things. And so I think it's the, this is a kind of interesting way to to sort of say wh where is then that research of development to develop these flavors as well. Well, I would point to the to the craft brewing industry um, because they are, are some of the most innovative, freewheeling really confident people who take a chance. And the biggest example of that is the sour beer kind of change or, or, or it's not a fad, it's here to stay and it's continued to grow. And there's so many different flavors, so many different ideas, but the idea of just putting a liquid out in the open for a certain amount of time and waiting for it to sour, that's, that's fermentation. That's how creme fraiche used to be made for three days. You, know, you leave it out above your, refrigerator, you know, for three days and it, it turns into that, that thing. And so there's a certain amount of flavor that's going to come from, again, the place. But I think you can also try to help that along if you want to. It won't be an exact sour, but 
is a way to understand it. But think about that flavor profile. A sour beer is not a Budweiser. It's not an industrial type of Pilsner. It has a lot of nuance and it's really intense and it, it takes a certain understanding that I'm about to have a sour beer. Where when we have cheeses that are sold in stores, in large supermarkets, there's a desire or a need, a requirement for consistency. Um, that I'm going to buy this queso oaxaqueño and it's going to do exactly what I want every single time. This cotija better be crumbly because I need it to go onto corn. So there's an assertion of I need this as an ingredient as opposed to maybe enjoying it on its own. So there's a bit of a, I think there's an opportunity, almost a marketing opportunity for saying, no, we're going to make this, it's going to be different, it's going to be intense. And you know what? I'm taking a chance in introducing something into this production that's never been there before. A different microbe, a different surface ripening bacteria, a different adjunct culture. And in fact, it's going to be the kitchen sink and we're going to see what happens. Or they're going to take a chance and they're going to try to make something with native cultures that is going to be different. It's going to be, quote unquote, maybe a little off or a little dirty, so to speak. But that's that's an opportunity. That's a chance. But there's also the need for safety. So that's the hard part, the balance. Um, but it's all they all kind of fit into one another. I want to take a chance on making a product. Will it sell? Uh, it, it won't sell like Queso Oaxaqueño does because it's not the same. So I need to really put a lot of thought behind how I'm going to sell it. I'm going to have to market it differently. And will people accept it? And then if they do accept it, great. Can we make it again and make it consistent? And this, it's a really difficult thing to do, but it takes some strength, takes some entrepreneurial spirit and some chances. But those chances need to be safe. That's the hardest part here. So it's, it's going to take a little bit, but I don't see it being impossible. Right. I'm always surprised by, you know, when, when I talk to um, uh, Dr. Denis D'Amico, yes. you know, he runs the, the dairy lab in, uh, at the University of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And one of the cheeses that they make, uh, the listeners Hustalipa. may not know this, is what? Hustalipa. Right. Which is a fresh cheese, right? Like it's a yes. Mexican style uh, queso blanco, I think maybe. Yep. Mm -hmm. And I always find that sort of interesting that you know they, that no one knows that probably the best queso blanco in the country is actually it's made by the University of Connecticut, <laughs> and it, it is. is also made primary. I mean, obviously, you know, to sell it and everything, but part also as a as a test ground for a lot of the sort of contamination and, and things, right? Like cheese is obviously not contaminated. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying no, is no. that it has been used uh, for research in yes. how things can be contaminated and all that. Um, yes. But there's this sort of blind spot that, you know, sort of going back to, to that other conversation, that there's that there's actually quite an interesting product in the United States of Hispanic style, but that is not being... Um, it hasn't gotten to that level of, you know, wide recognition and uh, widespread recognition and, and acknowledgement. Um, mm -hmm. You obviously have had uh, your hand in some of uh, the production of some very interesting cheeses and, you know, developing some very interesting cheeses, not only in Hispanic stuff, but in other sets. What do you think is the... The, sort of the next frontier of of that. What, where are we at that yeah, we're, is going to go next? We're yeah. at a good place for flavor development. There's a lot of, of desire for more flavor development and different flavors. Um, I think we're, we're finding more. It, it's, it's not just about sweet anymore. It, it's 
in some cases a little about savory and about umami, those kind of flavors. And I do see opportunity there. I see opportunity for in any production of fermentation for the hybrids of flavors. And again, I, I go back to the to the beer industry and you look at the craft beers that have been made with peanut butter and chocolate and rose water and I mean all sorts of different things that are being used. There's an opportunity. Craft cocktails, they're continually adding flavors on top of each other, not just coming out with a lemon or a blueberry. No, it has now it has herbs in it. Now it has these other components because there is always a desire for good flavor. So we're at a good place there. Um, I'm curious about um, alternative um, proteins. So, you know, plant-based versions of, of different productions, um, whether they be in beverage style, they'd be an edible kind of cheese-like form. Um, there's a lot of opportunity there. And mostly because the bases are different. When you have a different protein and you put similar or you put cultures that you have a conception of from working in dairy and you put them into the plant-based, they go in many different directions. They, they actually, there's a wide range of things that can happen. In one case, we actually put something into a base that normally doesn't have a, a strong flavor. If anything, it has a little bit of a savory effect. But in the end, the product that we had, which was a little pasty, so to speak, was it had the flavor of cooked chicken skin. <laughs> from okay. this one culture that was put into it. Why did that happen for that culture? There's, you have to go back and try to understand what is it unlocking and what is it about this protein that unfolded and how did it unfold for that to then access it? What did it need to access and create that, that ester, that flavor, all those pieces? It was a moment in time. And we know this, this the cheese making fermentation is a moment in time. It's a capture of a moment in time. The fact that we're able to reproduce it is amazing. Um, and we, we give ranges and such because we know there's going to be some differences, but there's still so much to learn. And I think we're at a good point of learning and a lot more interest in it too. I mean, the probiotic interest has gone up quite a bit, which means there's an acceptance of cultures of understanding when you see cultures on a, on a container of yogurt, I'm okay with it. You see probiotics, maybe you think even more so, I'm okay with it. Maybe there's still some understanding to be had and more education to, to come around what probiotics are and what they mean and how effective they are. There's still a lot of that being done in, in universities, but there is at least a general acceptance of, I know when I go to get something fermented, I'm not scared of it anymore. Right. So what's the next thing after you get over your fear? How does it taste? And does this work for me? Do I like it? If you like it, you start going with it consistently. You start looking for it. You start seeking it out. And then you start getting to a point of what else is out there? And you start looking left and right to the different products you've never bought before. And you start thinking, I think I'll give that a try. I'll try that one. So we're at a good explorative phase. And with the information that's out there, I think customers are, are at least equipped to understand what they're getting into. And with, with the ability to try foods in different places like breweries, like distilleries and things of that nature, and also food trucks, if, you know, when they come back in full strength, there's going to be a renewed interest in something new, a new experience. So, but it won't be a fearful trying of a new experience. It will be a, I, th I think I know what I'm doing here. 
So that's where the opportunity is. And I think we'll see more other opportunities for hybrids. Maybe they will be plant-based and milk-based. There already is plant and milk, like almond and dairy cow milk being sold at supermarkets. So how far away are we from, from that hybrid? So there's a lot to explore continually. And I'm really excited to be a part of it because it's just a part of, again, the first question that I had when I tried my first piece of cheese, when I was told what I was eating was sheep milk from the island of Sardinia. And I just immediately shot back at the person who was interviewing me. You can get milk from sheep. (laughs) I was 25 years old, didn't know. And since then I've been embarrassed by that. And I've always been asking, why didn't I know that? What else do I don't know? I need to know more. I need to understand. Why does this taste that way? Why does this taste that way? Why do things from around the world taste different from one another? And are we ever going to be better than Mother Nature? No. We just are here to enjoy it, understand it, learn from it, maybe try to harness some of its greatness. And we continue to do that in our own way. Cool. Well, that's a very positive message, Robert. As always, I end up... um feeling better when I talk to you and I hope that the listeners also got that. That is all the time that we have for today. Um, uh, Listeners, I'm very happy that you got to hear again from Robert. Thank you for joining us today. Um, Make sure to tune in next time and please follow us online. Uh, I want to thank our producer today, who is Armin, and uh, the entire team at the Heritage Radio Network. Until next time. Bye. Thank you. Cutting the Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>